This is the Collector Car Podcast, the home for the auto enthusiast. Join Greg Stanley as he applies over 25 years of insights and analytical experience to the collector car market. He will interview the experts and throw in some fun stuff as well. Hey, it's Greg Stanley. If you're listening to this podcast, you know I love everything automotive. This passion has expanded to include being a car specialist consultant for RM Sotheby's. So if you need assistance buying or consigning a collector car at any one of our online or live auctions, including Scottsdale, Amelia Island, or Monterey, you can reach one of our car specialists at rmsotheby's.com or you can email me directly at gstanley at rmsotheby's.com. Metron Garage is a company designing unique garages, condos, and other structures specifically for the auto enthusiasts. They've got eight models to choose from, including two-story options, which I think is super cool, while with a very modern look and feel to them. And they come in all sizes, and they're fully customizable. You can check out them today and start specking your own ultimate garage at metrongarage.com, where you can request a catalog or talk to someone to learn more. So be sure to check it out. Welcome back to the Collector Car Podcast. Hey, it's Greg Stanley. And for this episode, I will review the Amelia Island results from all the big auction houses. And I will identify some of the winners and losers from different events. This will include everything from the cars that performed above expectations to those that did not to events that occurred over the weekend. There is even one new car that literally made my eyes hurt. It was so ugly. I'm normally not a negative person, but man, did my eyes hurt. But before we get started, I do have a few updates. So soon you will notice that I've added an artist update section to the podcast. So this will be in addition to the regular content, and it will be a quick interview with some of the incredible automotive artists I have had the pleasure of meeting at these different events. There's some really amazing, fascinating, interesting stuff that folks are doing out there that I would love to adorn my walls and my office in my garage, and basically anywhere. Now, there are three ways for you to get content from the Collector Car Podcast. Obviously, if you are listening to this podcast, you know that a new episode is posted every Thursday at 4 a.m. So if you are a gym rat, you will have my lovely voice to listen to while you're working out. Now, future episodes include an interview with Motor Trend editor Johnny Lieberman. He picks his 10 cars for his ultimate garage. Cavallino Classics' Luigi Orlandini. The Best Little Car Collection, that's a collection of Hot Wheels. A deeper look into Jay Leno's Garage, which is like five episodes and a lot more. You can also find new content on my YouTube channel, The Collector Car Podcast, including a behind-the-scenes look at what it means to be a car specialist for RM Sotheby's. I will also include some collector visits, walking around their collections, some cool barn finds, and museum tours. Videos coming soon include a tour of the Gilmore Car Museum, a barn find Dodge Power Wagon that is available now for private sale, and I share my experiences during the Amelia Concours weekend, which that should be posted this Monday. My goal is to post a new one every Monday. We'll see if that's realistic or not. The third avenue for new content is to subscribe to my Insider's Alert email, This has additional market trend information, including my most recent 12 cars to watch at Amelia and my results of those 12 cars. Did I pick good ones that were fun to watch at Amelia or did I pick total duds? That will go out hopefully by Monday as well. To subscribe, you can either go to thecollectorcarpodcast.com, go to contact, and you'll see there's an area to subscribe to the newsletter or email me directly at greg at thecollectorcarpodcast.com. Okay, now let's move on to the winners and losers of Amelia Island. 
First, I, you know, I really need to make a note about the estimates that are put on these cars that go to auction. Honestly, the estimates are only as good as the car specialist at those auction houses. So the way the process typically works is a car specialist will review a car, take a bunch of pictures, come up with an estimate based on recent public sales, valuation guides, the like, and then they'll have it blessed by two or three other car specialists within the organization. And at Arm Sotheby's, we want to be as accurate as possible. And we'll confer with, you know, another specialist who might be very good with a certain era of automobile. So I'm not a, I'm not a pre-war guy. So I will go to Jake for pre-war cars. It's just certain specialists specialize in different things. Now, auction houses should want to be as accurate as possible, but it's difficult in today's hyperactive market. And sometimes it's just hard to get it just right. Now, there is one that I will give you a heads up on. I've had a couple friends of mine tell me that they will allow them to give their estimates in their reserve without any input. And that's a big red flag to me because if all they want is the car and they don't care what the estimate is, if it's realistic or not, that tells me they just want to get a signed contract and then they will grind you until you lift your reserve, which is not the right way to do business. So beware of this. If this happens to you, you need to run away as fast as possible. <laughs> also, many times there's a gap between what the seller thinks his or her car is worth and what the auction house believe it believes it will sell through just based through experience. This sometimes results in cars selling for an appropriate value, but they might be selling below estimates. So an example of this would be is, you know, if we know a car is going to sell for $250,000 because we sold 10 of them over the last year, but the seller wants three dollars to $400,000, in order to get the car, it might be possible to bring the car in and hope that it performs really well, as a lot of these cars have, and that it hits that three hundred to $400,000 estimate. Now, if it doesn't, if it falls short, then the specialist will work with the seller to see if they want to take the realistic number that did come to fruition at the auction. Now, Haggerty had a great quote that highlighted this gap in seller's expectations and actual valuations from the Amelia Concours, and I'll actually reference this a couple times. Per Haggerty, bidders were willing to play ball, but sellers, perhaps spoiled by a year of estimate-beating sales, were often holding out for more. A quarter of cars that did not sell were bid to Haggerty's number one condition, that's Concours condition, value. Sellers or even the auction companies are overestimating the heat of the market. To be fair, there are times when the estimate cannot keep up with the quickly increasing values of certain makes. So one example would be the fairly new BMWs that were selling at Gooding. Those, most of those sold above estimate, and these are cars from the 90s and 2000s, and they're just hot right now. So sometimes you can't get the estimate to catch up with the actual market. Now, for the purposes of this analysis, I did not include any motorcycles in my calculations. There are quite a few of those at Bonhams because this is not the Collector Motorcycle Podcast. <laughs> All right, so I'm going to start off with the winners here. So the total sales for three day, the three-day auction window was $127.7 million. Now, that's across Arms, Sotheby's, Gooding, and Bonhams. It was the second highest gross total after 2016's record high of $140 million. That was the peak of the collector car market at the time. Now, my question to you is, did we just experience a new peak, or is this market going even higher? Obviously, only time will tell on that. We will probably see at Monterey. Now, the highest sales for Amelia from number one to number three. Number one was Gooding with $66 million. Number two was RM Sotheby's with $44 million. And coming up in third place was Bonham's 
at $15 million. Now, if you look at year-to-date sales, now we're only in Q1, January, February, March. Total year-to-date, number one is RM Sotheby's at $117 million. And number two is Gooding at $73 million. And number three is Bonham's at $26 million. Now, I'm just looking at the three companies that had auctions during Amelia weekend. All right, so the winner is obviously Gooding for Amelia with the highest gross sales. And then RM Sotheby's is crushing it for the year-to-date number. Now, I'll just give you a brief rundown of the top 10 sales from Amelia Island. This will be pretty brief because we'll talk about some of these cars again in a minute. Number 10 was the 1967 Toyota 2000 GT Coupe. This was a Shelby Race Coupe. Sold for $2.5 million with Gooding. Uh, number 9 was 1954 Bentley R-Type Continental. $2.9 million with Gooding. Number 8, 1959 Porsche 718 RSK for $3 million again with Gooding. Now, these next five are with RM Sotheby's. Number seven is the 1930 Duesenberg Model J Convertible. This one went really nuts. The estimate, I think, the high estimate was $2.4, $2.5 million, and it sold for $3.5 million, a million dollars over high estimate. Number six was the 2020 McLaren Speedtail Coupe for $2.7 million, so that's a fairly new car. The next one's also a new car. Number five, the 2019 Bugatti Chiron Sport, $3.4 million. Again, a new, a new car, fairly new car. Number four, Ferrari La Ferrari from 2015 at $3.6 million. All right, the big sale for RM Sotheby's was at number three, the 1934 Packard 12 Series Dietrich Convertible, Convertible Victoria. That was the premier car that sold for $4.1 million. The top car for Bonhams was the 1955 Porsche 550 Spider Roadster for $4.2 million. That's our number two car. And the number one car way out in front is Gooding's 1937 Tabo Lago T150-C-SS for $13.4 million. Now, I will get into pre-war cars here in a little bit. One thing was interesting. This was not a next-generation buyer buying this car. It was an older gentleman, probably in his late 60s, early 70s, that bought that car. So when I talk about pre-war cars and the trend of next-gen, it did not include the Tabo. <laughs> All right, so the winner is R.M. Sotheby's for selling five out of the top ten cars. Obviously, Gooding had the home run with the Talbo. And then, let's see, we had some record-breaking results at the auction. Uh, let's see, 1993 Jaguar XJ220, R.M. Sotheby's sold for a record $687,000. The 1967 Toyota 2000 GT Coupe, I mentioned, sold for 2.5 with Gooding. That was a record for a JDM car, Japanese domestic market car. And the Talbo, 1937 Talbo, was a record for a French car at $13.4 million. Now, like I said before, a good auction house will want to be as accurate as possible. And so let's go through the accuracy of these threes. Now, how do I define accuracy? Well, these are cars that sold within the estimate range that was provided prior to the auction. So the least accurate was actually Gooding. They only had 35.4% of the cars fall within their estimate. Number two was Bonhams at 37.6%. And Arm Sotheby's was the best when it came from an accuracy perspective on estimates at 41.4%. All right. Now, who else won this weekend? It was the educated buyers. Now, what I mean is, you know, it is a hot market, but there's still deals to be made. You may pay up for it, knowing, though, that you will be able to sell it for a profit in the future. And the one I called out, which I thought was pretty cool, it's a 1981 Porsche 924 Carrera GTS Club Sport that was at RM Sotheby's. This car sold in 2019, again, with RM Sotheby's. 
at the Taj Mahal garage sale in Dayton, Ohio. I was there, and it sold for $375,000. At the time, I was not with RM Sotheby's, and I walked around, and I asked the car specialists, the experts that were there on site, I said, of all the Porsches in this collection, which one would you pick? And five of them picked this car, because it only has like nine miles. You know, it's made for the racetrack. It was never raced. It's unrestored original and absolutely fantastic condition. And that surprised me. That was not the car I would have picked. But all these guys were younger than me, so I knew something was going on with that. And I wanted to see what would happen the next time it sold. And it sold at Amelia for $418,000. So that was a very educated buyer that maybe paid up for it in 2019, but then made a decent profit selling it a couple years later, about a $60,000 profit. All right, let's see. Who else won over the weekend? Well, we have two more that I called out. I knew that, I know there was a lot more winners over the weekend, but I will say Haggerty's Cars and Caffeine event apparently was a huge winner. I was there early, about 7 o'clock in the morning, and I had to leave by 8, 8.15. So I was only there during setup. But everyone I talked to afterwards, they said it was really amazing. There were five or 600 cars that showed up, and Haggerty had them broken into different classes. Some fun, kind of quirky classes as well. You had Radwood there, so you had the stuff from the 1980s and 1990s. There was all sorts of cool stuff. They had the Lemons cars there. They had some JDM cars there. So while I didn't witness it myself, I heard from numerous people that that was really fantastic and an improvement over years past. Now, the other winner I'll have to call out was Haggerty as a whole. I mean, they bought Amelia Island Concord Elegance last year. Big public fanfare. They renamed it, rebranded it The Amelia a lot of folks talking about it. You know, I talked to a lot of folks that maybe weren't really happy with a lot of the transitions that had occurred across a lot of different aspects of the Concorde. But, you know, that's changed. It's transitioning ownerships or trying to make it more profitable or profitable. I don't know their balance sheet. So I will have to say, Haggerty, it was a big win because everything was busy. Everything was packed. People seemed to be having a good time. All the changes that did happen, some of them maybe were difficult changes to make. Not everybody was pleased for sure, but it seemed to be a tremendous success. So Haggerty was a big winner for the big weekend. All right, now let's transition to some losers. Now, I hate to be negative like this, but I really couldn't figure out a better way to put it. And then we'll finish up with some mixed results. And I do have some quotes from some Haggerty articles I thought were really spot on. Now, Haggerty is not a sponsor of this podcast. I just find some of the commentary really good. And we've had some of the Haggerty folks on this podcast who are really awesome. So from a loser's perspective, uh, the first one is whoever the owner is of a 1972 Ferrari 365 GTC4, it hit a high bid that was almost 25% higher than a number one condition would normally sell for. So it went 25% above the highest condition, Concord condition, but it went unsold at $350,000. So they were hoping for more. Uh, The next loser was, they were my eyes. My eyes hurt. Like I said, when I saw this car, I just did not like. It's the prototype 2002 Hispanos Hueza Carmen. Now, if you were at Amelia Island, you saw it way out in the distance. It was a cool kind of purple shade that you could see the carbon carbon fiber weave, and the carbon fiber weave was cool. But man, it just did not come together in the front end. If you looked at it from basically the three quarters or the quarter rear, I just thought it was much better, much more attractive. Pretty cool, actually. But man, it did not feel good on my eyeballs. All right, some other losers. A lot of the 1950 cars that sold underestimate at Bonhams. Bonhams had a lot of cars underestimate. They still hammered sold. 
So I'm going to run down a list. So is this a trend, like I've said before on this podcast, where cars from the 50s are not selling strongly? You know, there's there's pros and cons, or there's examples where they have, and there's examples where they haven't. I would say it seems like 60 to 65% of the 1950s cars that are selling are selling soft. There are some that are selling strong, mostly like the Cadillacs, the Premier car, the the peak cars of that time frame. So let's just run through the list of the cars that sold under estimate. 1956 Packard Caribbean convertible sold for half of the high estimate. The other ones that sold under the low estimate was a 1957 Ford Fairlane 500, a 1954 Austin Healey, 1956 Lincoln Continental Mark II, 1953 Rolls-Royce Silver Wraith, uh, two Jaguar XK120s, 1952 and 1954, 1951 Jaguar Mark V, and a 1954 Rolls-Royce Silver Dawn. So either the market's slowing on these cars, as I said, or the estimates were too high. Could have been a combination of both. They did hammer sold, but I don't imagine the owners were quite thrilled. All right, some other losers. The highest percent sold underestimate. So this is looking at the auction houses as a whole. What percent of cars sold under the low estimate? All right, RM Sotheby's only had 12.6%. They were in third place. Gooding in second place, 19.2% sold underestimate. And so the surprise here is Bonhams. They had 41.2% sell under low estimate. I mean, that's that's more than Gooding and RM Sotheby's combined. So I don't know really what was going on there. It was quite surprising to see so many sell underestimate. All right, the other loser for the auction weekend was the 1950 cars that went unsold. There were some big ones here that went unsold. The 1952 Allard J2 from Bonhams. Uh, some of these are big dollar cars. The 1957 Mercedes-Benz 300 SC unsold for $550,000. dollars uh, That was from Bonhams. A 1955 Dodge Firebomb from RM Sotheby's was unsold at $800,000. That was an interesting car because... It was the one and only prototype car, which eventually became the Dual Gia. Dual Gios were pretty cool looking. The Dodge Firebomb was not quite as cool looking. So maybe it was, you know, how it looked stopped it from going higher. Let's see. Gooding had a 1951 Ferrari 195 Inter Coupe. That was a no sale at $900,000. Gooding also had a 1954 Oscar, no sale at $1.1 million. And let's see. This car is actually 1960. Uh, Mercedes 300 SL Roadster was a no-sale at $1.9 million at Bonhams. Now, if you were on my email blast, that was one of the cars I picked out as ones to watch because I thought their estimate was really strong. It was like 2 to $2.4 million for a 300 SL Roadster. And the reason being that it was called high, I'm assuming, it was a unique paint job, which is kind of a neon yellow which to me is not a positive. But then also it had a replacement engine block in period, and it went from cast iron to alloy. So that was probably the biggest reason that it had a much higher estimate. So no sale at $1.9 million. Now the last loser I'll mention was there was a there were a lot of folks that were not happy with the, the changes Haggerty made to the Amelia. But you know what? It was, like I said, Haggerty was a big winner because it went off, it happened, people were there. It was packed. You know, folks aren't used to change. I'm not always used to change. There was some stuff that happened that I didn't care for. But you know what? You got to cut them a break. It's their first year in ownership of this premier event. 
and I think it will only get better going forward. I did want to quote an article from Haggerty. It was called, Despite Strong Results, Amelia Island 2022 pr- Proved Bidders Have Their Limits. So overall, the week confirmed that the market is still very hot, included many record sales, but Amelia was not another leap upwards as we saw at the January 2022 auctions. It's tempting to blame events in Europe, which managed to royal the stock market even as bidders were descending upon Amelia. Yet if we learned anything from the past two years, it's that collectors will continue collecting despite and maybe even to escape from turmoil in the world at large. Like look at COVID. Rather, we suspect we're simply seeing a market-finding equilibrium. The strong prices over the last few years have drawn more sellers. This year's Amelia auctions had the most consignments since before the pandemic and the highest ever percentage of cars with estimates over a million dollars. Bidders were willing to play ball, but sellers, perhaps spoiled by a year of estimate-beating sales, were often holding out for more. Here's that quote I mentioned earlier. A quarter of cars that did not sell were bid to Haggerty's number one Concord condition value. Sellers or even auction comp- or even the auction companies are overestimating the heat of the market. All right, now let's move on to the mixed results. And for this, I have pre-war cars. And I'll get to an article here in a moment about pre-war cars that Haggerty mentioned. I thought it was interesting about younger buyers. So RM Sotheby's was the most successful with the pre-war cars, uh, at least in my mind. We had sold 17 and one was unsold a couple of these examples that did sell it was the 1934 packard i mentioned earlier that sold for 4.1 million dollars the duesenberg i mentioned that sold over a million dollars above high estimate uh let's see there was a 1937 bugatti type 57 which sold for over half a million dollars some really nice cars at arm the only one that was unsold was a 1935 packard 12 dual cal phaeton had a high bid of $290,000. Now, Gooding sold five, and they did not sell three. So two of the noted no-sales, both of them were 1930 Packard Deluxe 8s. One was a coupe, and the other was a convertible, both by Dietrich. The coupe was a no-sale at $1.6 million, and the convertible was a no-sale at $725,000, so a situation where the convertible is worth less than the coupe. And then Bonham sold 28 pre-war cars and five were unsold the noted no sale was a 1938 bugatti type 57c it had a 1.2 million dollar high bid i kind of think rm was more successful because i had a higher quality of pre-war car available for example bonhams had 11 cars that were sold under fifty thousand dollars that were pre-war cars so much lower quality at least on those 11 cars. I do want to review the article I mentioned earlier. It was called Why Younger Buyers Are Increasingly Chasing Pre-War Cars. When I saw this come in my inbox, I'm like, ooh, that sounds very interesting. All right, 2021 showed a significant increase in the sell-through rate of pre-war cars, up 10 points from 60% to 70%, and a big reduction in the number of cars selling for under low estimate, just 10% compared with 41% in 2020. In general, pre-war cars seemed to sell better at auction in 2021 compared with the previous year. Of course, that was a COVID year. Also, the demographics of owners are changing and in an encouraging fashion. Younger drivers are warming to these aging cars. From 2019 to 2021, the number of millennials insuring pre-war cars with Haggerty grew by 65%. For Generation X, that's me, born between 1965 and 1980, It rose by 32%, while the number of owners born before 1946 fell a little by 2%. 
Some of the big sales of pre-war classics prove the market isn't just buying their youth and moving on as demographics shift. Three of the top five sales were from the 1930s. Those are the ones I just mentioned. This is the second year in a row that pre-war cars have performed particularly well at Amelia, suggesting that even as more collectors gravitate toward online auctions, curated in-person sales seem to be the right place for these older machines, which tend to benefit more than other cars from in-person inspections. That said, it's worth noting that many of the pre-war cars that sold here, even those that brought big prices, tended to be flat compared to previous sales 5 or 10 years ago. For instance, the Talbot Lago I mentioned that sold for an impressive $13.4 million, but that's only 1.8% more than it brought last time it sold 9 years ago. A high-yield savings account might have performed better in that time, although, of course, it wouldn't have returned nearly as much enjoyment. All right, Haggerty's summation about the weekend, which I thought was pretty spot-on and positive. Overall, the bidding at Amelia was certainly enthusiastic, but not overly so. In the long run, that may be a good thing. An overheated market is one that has the potential to cool suddenly. What we saw in Amelia was car collectors were still very much willing to pay big money for exceptional cars, but not willing to spend recklessly. That bodes well for the long-term stability of collector car values. I don't know. I did see a couple of reckless spending sprees while I was there. Uh, But maybe, you know, looking at the entirety of all three, that is a true statement. So as always, thank you so much for joining me this week. I will talk to all of you next week. And please check out the YouTube channel and let me know if you want the email. Thanks. Thanks for listening to the Collector Car Podcast. Don't forget to give us a nice rating on iTunes and be sure to follow us on Instagram and everywhere else at the Collector Car Podcast.